give this a second. All right, hello everybody. Um, it's good to be here. Um, I know, like Jonathan was saying, um, I haven't met some of you, others of you. Yeah, we know each other, but it's, it's been a little while, so it's, it's really good to be here. Um, like Jonathan was saying, we um, are having Pastor Steve at Arlington today, and me here, mostly so that everyone at Arlington can, you know, um, like hear from Steve and know him and, um, you know, receive his shepherding as he leads our church as a whole. And then um, I'm just over here to hang out. I don't know. <laughs> no. Anyway, um, but uh, we're, we're looking at Mark 2 today. Um, we're continuing in our series and uh, we're, we're continuing in this little, um, little section within Mark um, that starts from Mark chapter 2, verse 1, and goes up to 3, verse 6. And it's, it's these kind of mini episodes of Jesus' conflict with uh, the religious leaders of his day and time. And so we're looking at uh, these verses, verse 13 through verse 17 today. Um, we're going to be um, looking at this dinner that Jesus has with sinners. Uh, if, you're, if you're taking notes, you can title of this sermon, Jesus Has Dinner with Sinners. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. So if you could turn with me there, Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Again, we'll be reading up to verse 17. I know Pastor Jonathan prayed um, as we, you know, prayed for us as we uh, look into this, but if, if you wouldn't mind, uh, can we pray one more time? Father, we open our hearts to you. Holy Spirit, we open our hearts to you. Let us know Christ. Let us be like Christ and equip us, really equip us to, to know you and to make you known, Lord. Equip us to be not just a bunch of individuals trying to know you and follow you, but Lord, strengthen us uh, as a community. Make us to be a community uh, like the one that you envision. Lord, do this. Even do this through your word. This very powerful word through which you speak to us and create things and shape us. I thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm starting in verse 13. Um, just a little bit of background. Um, up to this point in Mark, we've seen Jesus start um, doing his ministry, proclaiming the good news. That good news is that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. That is the good news. Because Jesus has come, the kingdom of God. And all that means, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. And so we see Jesus proclaiming that good news in word and in deed. He's healing sick people. He's casting demons out of people. He's uh, speaking to people. He's proclaiming things to people. And he's doing this all around the Sea of Galilee, around these towns and villages around the Sea of Galilee. And um, this is where we pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 2. Jesus went out again beside the sea. So again, he's... He's going out among these towns and villages by the Sea of Galilee, and all the crowd was coming to him, 
and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, so I think here Mark is not describing for us, like there's this one time Jesus went out again to the sea, but it seems like he's, he's talking about, okay, around this time, Jesus was going out among these towns and villages. And then much more specifically in verse 14, this one time he passed by, and this is what he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And um, I just want to stop here and talk about the tax booth and this person named Eli. Oh, sorry, not Eli, Levi. We're talking about Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Um, probably, since Mark names Alphaeus, is probably someone that the early church knew. These early readers of Mark, they probably knew someone named Alphaeus. And that church in the first, like, 20, 30 years of the church after Jesus was resurrected and after Jesus ascended, um, it was a small world, okay? It's sort of like um, everyone's just a couple of degrees separated from each other. Like, kind of you know people. Um, like, people knew Alphaeus, or it's like either like, oh, I've, I've, I've heard of Alphaeus, or I know someone who knows someone who knows him. You know, that, that's sort of the world of the early church. And what's really interesting about Alphaeus is he has the son, and maybe... I don't know, maybe both of them are known in the early church, but we find out that his son, Levi, was at the tax booth, meaning he was a tax collector. And just in case um, you're, you're not familiar with who tax collectors were in that time, um, let me just explain a little bit. Um, it's it's kind of shocking, I think, when we're reading this and we see Jesus ministering to people, Jesus healing people, speaking to people, and then all of a sudden there's like a task collector. It, it's, it's this shock. It's what, like, what is this tax collector doing here? Because this tax collector, or this group of people that we call tax collectors, they're really despised people in that area of the Jewish people. They're like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's, it's easy for us to kind of come up with a current or like contemporary equivalent, because um, I don't know, there's so many factors involved, but I don't know, I mean, they are one, they are very rich. So in some ways, they're like, like the one percenters. You know, they're the people of privilege. They're the people of entitlement, you know? Um, they are people who started out with wealth because they probably had to buy this position. Okay, so when you're a tax collector in, the Jewish, in this Jewish area in Judea, you're part of like a Roman Empire's colony, basically. Okay, and you're working with the colonizers. You're a collaborator. You're a traitor. And you probably had to have money and means in order to even get this position. So, like, right away, they're, like, tax collectors. Even before they actually do their tax collecting, there are already people that we distrust because they're collaborators, because, you know, they're, they're wealthy and they're using their wealth for their own advantage. And then when it comes to the actual job they have, this tax collecting, you mostly make your money as a tax collector by collecting money beyond the taxes due to the Roman Empire because it's like, okay, I'm, tax, I'm collecting taxes from you and this is how much you owe, let's say, whatever, 10% of your produce 
you owe to the Roman Empire. And then for me as a tax collector to make any money myself, like my income comes from, it's kind of like a commission. My, my income comes from whatever tax I charge you on top of that. And so, as you could probably imagine, there's a ton of corruption, there's extortion, there's bribery probably, there's like probably falsifying the books. I mean, this was the life of a tax collector. And just think about how much, for example, like these fishermen that we've been reading about in Mark, like Simon, Andrew, John, James, like how much they hated this guy because he's their local tax collector. He's collecting taxes on all the fish they caught. It's not like, oh, I'm a fisherman, I'm at a lower income, so there's this very equitable system where I can pay just the right amount. It's, it's not like that. You know, it's, it's not just certain types of people who hated the tax collector. I mean, this is sort of shared. You know, in fact, it's pretty wild. Like, if you read sort of Jewish law books of that time, like commentaries on scripture, you'll see things like, like you're not allowed to bring a chair, you're not allowed to accept a donation, like charity, from a tax collector at his booth, because it's very likely that that money was gained illegally. You know, it even says stuff like, you can lie to a tax collector in order to guard your property, because tax collectors are so, like, despicable. So in this story, we're, we're in this, this vision of Jesus uh, healing people, speaking. Then all of a sudden, there's this tax collector. Jesus sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus. So again, probably knew this guy, Levi, and maybe and knew his father, Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Mark doesn't give us a backstory of Levi besides that he's a tax collector. We don't know like what he had seen of Jesus. We don't know what he had heard of from Jesus. All that Mark focuses our attention on is that Jesus called him. Jesus invited him to follow him, and he did. Okay, this is a pattern that we've been seeing throughout the, the first chapter and a half of Mark. There's a lot happening. There's velocity as Jesus calls people people are following him. And he rose and he followed him. And then in verse 15, we, got, we come to another scene. And as Jesus reclined at table in his house, and it seems like we're talking about Levi's house, and as Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. That is, they're at a banquet. They're at a feast they're at a banquet. They're at like a dinner party together. And it seems like Levi invited Jesus and Levi invited other people in town or maybe neighboring towns to be part of this banquet. It says many tax collectors and sinners. Okay, let me just, again, tax collectors, these people at tax booths. So probably they didn't have a lot of friends in that community. Maybe they're just friends with each other. I don't know. But Levi invites his tax collector friends. They didn't have anywhere else to be. You know, they're not being invited to other people's houses. Many tax collectors and then sinners. And here when Mark is talking about sinners, he's not talking about like all people 
in the same way that we see in other parts of the Bible, like we're all sinners. He's talking about a specific type of people, people who are socially outcast, people who are socially marginalized, like bad people, people who are not considered like decent citizens. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And again, this is shocking because tax collectors and sinners, these are despicable people. And it's not just that Jesus happened to be sitting nearby. Like, oh, they're sort of at a restaurant and Jesus happened to be close to them. Like, that's not controversial. What's controversial is, what's shocking is that these tax collectors are at this party. One of these tax collectors invited Jesus to be part of this party. And Jesus is there, presumably, like, enjoying himself enjoying this feast, this banquet, talking to them. And especially when we think about that culture, that time, eating is a big deal because there's so, like, so much of their religious life revolves around like, rules about eating, like how you eat. You, know, you have to ritually, it's not just because like, we're being like, hygienic, like I constantly got to wash my hands before I touch my food. It's because there's a ritual cleanness and uncleanness. It's like, oh, if you've done certain activities, if you've touched certain things, like, you're not supposed to eat in this way with certain other people. And when Jesus is eating and having this feast with these tax collectors and sinners, it's shocking because these people are the exact kind of people that we are not supposed to be eating with. Religiously, it's a no-no. And so here we see Jesus eating with many tax collectors and sinners. And unsurprisingly, verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees come onto the scene. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, and I, I could be that same night, but I, I would guess it's later. They said to his disciples, Jesus' disciples, why does he eat, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's scandalous. Who is this person? Verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, these scribes of the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, I just want to note that this is part of a larger passage about conflicts that the Pharisees and these religious leaders had with Jesus, and it culminates in chapter 3, verse 6, with these Pharisees deciding we're going to start to plot, to that's the word Mark used, to destroy him. They started plotting to destroy him. That's the end of this section. But here in this section, we see this conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's a controversy. Why? That's a controversy that the Pharisees come up with to, to oppose Jesus. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' response in verse 17, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus here, verse 17, lays out for us a statement of his like platform, his agenda, his mission. You know, like, 
let's not get it twisted and let all kinds of people, especially those who don't take the Bible seriously, misrepresent Jesus and put words in his mouth when it comes to his agenda. Let's not let, like, I don't know, whatever, like race supremacists or national, like people whose God is America or some kind of political party or personality is. They presume, like, presume to speak for Jesus. Now let's seriously read the Bible. Let's take Jesus seriously when he talks about what his own mission is. Luke 4, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 52, and here in Mark 2, verse 17. What is Jesus about? What does he want his community to look like? What is his mission? What is his purpose? And we see some answers here. Let's read it again. Verse 17, just the very end. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's who Jesus is, and that's what his community is supposed to look like. All right, this could be just a descriptive passage. We have to be careful not to assume that every passage is prescriptive and always the way it's supposed to happen. Like, oh, you know, like Jesus had dinner at a tax collector's house, so we all have to have dinner with tax collectors. It's, it's not necessarily that straightforward. But I think what makes us really convicting for us beyond just like a description is that it, the scene that we see matches up with verse 17 in Jesus' proclamation of his agenda so perfectly. You see, Jesus' community is this weird crew of people. Okay, this is a picture of Jesus' community here, Mark chapter 2. Sinners, tax collectors, his disciples. Fishermen, immoral people. There's this kind of wild crew that's been put together. It's a crew that doesn't have everything together in their lives. You know, it's a dinner party where you're going, if you go, you're like, who is at this party? Like, he's at this party? Like, she's at this party? Does Jesus know that they're there? Like, does Jesus know who they are? These are the kind of questions also that the Pharisees ask. And I think, though, we can look at the rest of the Bible, the rest of the New Testament, and see the same pattern in churches. The earliest churches, what we call like New Testament churches, were made up of people who didn't have it all together. It's not a, you know, when we look at that early church, it's not a collection of people who are like somethings in the world. Yeah, there are people who are wealthy. There are people of influence in these churches. But as a whole, like that's not what characterizes these churches. These churches are mixed, are a very mixed bag. Actually, Paul in the letter of 1 Corinthians says, he says, you know, not many of you were something. Most of you were nothing in, in a worldly sense. You weren't influential. You weren't wealthy. You know, you weren't wise, etc. Like, this is the picture of the early church. You know, I, I'm reminded, when I think about this, of a church that my wife and I were part of um, in New York, and there was this former, like, Jets player, football player, um, who was very, like, notorious, and, like, he was at the time an ex-Jet who was notorious and had been in and out of jail, and he became part of the church at some point. And at my wife's uh, work one day, they're like talking about the news, and he was in it for some reason, and she's like, oh, yeah, he, that guy goes to my church. And her boss is like, like, what kind of church are you part of? You know, and she cracked up, but we were kind of proud to be part of a church like that, you know, with people who are kind of questionable to others. You know, when it comes to being a community that looks like Jesus' Jesus community, you know, I would have to say not all churches follow the pattern of verse 17, the pattern that we see in this dinner party at Levi's house. And 
you know, I think it's important to ask ourselves, does our community, does my conception of my community, does our community fit this pattern? You know, and, and I think a lot of churches actually struggle to fit this pattern. And a problem in this for a lot of churches is that, I don't know, I, I guess to put it kind of crudely, it's, it's that people are not weird enough. You know, it, it's not that they're unweird because, like, all these kind of well-adjusted, well-to-do, likable people just happen to come together. You know, it's rather, the problem is that churches are sort of unweird because people who are sort of socially awkward, who have experienced traumas, who have real problems, who have sketchy pasts and perhaps sketchy presence, these people end up like not feeling accepted by the church and have a hard time becoming part of it. And then that's how churches become known as places where socially respectable people and religious types belong. You know, that's how churches become seen as places where, you know, some types of people, and actually types of people that were part of Jesus' community, some types of people can't be part of the church. And I think there's a tension that we might feel with this passage that sort of paralyzes us in looking like a community of Jesus described here. And that tension is that we are both like and unlike the Pharisees. So this little passage, verse 13 to 17, it's part of a bigger passage where there's conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus versus the Pharisees. There's Jesus' vision of things. There's Jesus' understanding of things. There's Jesus' perspective of things. And then there's the Pharisees. And in verse 13 and 17, we have Jesus' conception of a community and the Pharisees' conception. And that's a contrast that we're presented with here, and I think a, a contrast that challenges us. Again, because I think we are both unlike the Pharisees as well as like the Pharisees. Okay, so, like, I, and I'm not even talking about we as Christians. I'm just talking about we as people in our culture, you know. So on one hand, we don't like the Pharisees. We don't like these scribes of the Pharisees, and we don't want to be like them either because, well, I mean, partly we've heard these stories of their conflicts with Jesus and how they tried to destroy him, and they're the bad guys in the story, but also partly because we associate them with, like, hyper-religious and legalistic people, you know, like petty people. And we, as a culture, we want to be tolerant, you know, and, and we have to be because we're trying to get along with lots of different people at work and school and in the neighborhood. And also, like, we generally like being more kind of spiritual than religious. You know, that's just who we are culturally. But then we are, like, we have, like, oil in this. Anyway, but we are like the Pharisees, too, because, like, we are, I don't know, like, I think when we're being honest with ourselves, like, we are self-righteous people. Like, just culturally, that's who we are. You know, we are haughty. We are puritanical, and we like seeing other people as worse people than we are because we like moral outrage, you know, like tweets and like Reddit, you know, like they're, they're mostly, I mean, besides like, oh, there's this like gif of a cute cat, you know, but otherwise they're like moral outrage, and we love feeling like, oh, like we're better than that, like how dare these people, and in that way, we are actually like the Pharisees. And we're also like the Pharisees in that even though we say we don't want to be legalistic, we actually tend to be very legalistic. 
And not meaning like we're overly strict, but just legalistic in that a person who's not strict can be just as legalistic as a very strict person because both kinds of people can live with the mindset of like, how much can I disobey God and still have a right relationship with God? You know, like, and the answer that some legalists give to that question is you can disobey very little. There's not much margin. And those are people we think of as like very strict and we think of them as legalists. But then there are other legalists who say you can still disobey a lot. You can disobey a lot and still have a right relationship with God. Like both are legalists because instead of thinking about how we can say yes to Jesus, how we can love God, how we can love others, we're thinking in terms of how much disobedience is allowed. And especially those of us who have been brought up very religiously, we have a tendency to be like that. And we feel this tension, you know, like I'm sort of like the Pharisees as well as unlike the Pharisees when we recognize that Jesus accepts people as they are, but also we, we believe that people can't experience Jesus and belong to Jesus until they're sort of cleaned up enough and have their stuff together enough. And so that's how we act and, and that's how we like treat people, sometimes how we even treat ourselves. But then we look at the book of Mark, when we look at the stories of Jesus that we have in this, in this Bible, our Holy Scripture, when we look at this passage in Mark chapter 2, 13 to 17, this book on which you know, we as Christians are basing our lives and our hope, we read and we and I, and I think we're challenged to you know, think about this question. Were people able or unable to experience Jesus' healing and forgiveness and joy before they cleaned up and proved themselves in their faith? And the answer is, like, they were able. You know, I, I, you know, I can testify for myself, too. Like, like I, used to, I used to think a lot more like this. You know, like, I remember uh, when I was younger, um, like, I wouldn't invite my non-Christian friends to pray with me or with, like, my group of Christians because I figured, well, you know, if they haven't committed to Christ, how can they connect to God? You know, how can they ask and receive? What authority do they have in coming to the Father, that the Father would listen to them? You know, and me not inviting them to be part of things, me not inviting them to like pray with me or with us wasn't because like I thought I was better than them necessarily or because I was shy or something like that. I mean, maybe it, partly it's in there. I don't know. But it was really because of my theology. Like I didn't read the stories of Jesus very well because there are all these stories of people receiving healing and kindness and provision from Jesus before they had faith. And for some of them, even though they never ended up having faith in Christ, And somehow, like, I couldn't conclude, as I read scripture, that people around me could receive from Christ, couldn't receive from his very present and very real spirit in the same way that we see in scripture. You know, I I say this, like, with embarrassment. Um, But, you know, I'm just sharing this because I know a lot of Christians have a similarly poor theology. As we look at this passage, you know, like, we really have to think, are we identifying more with this community that is in this banquet with Jesus, or is our community more like these Pharisees? 
you know, like just as a way of getting into it, like let's think about how must Andrew and Simon have felt at this party. They're fishermen. They've been taxed by this same guy, Levi, for, I don't know, maybe years. Like, they hate him. He's a reason, like, it's very, it's a very, like, direct line of blame. The reason I'm struggling, the reason my family's struggling is because of this guy, because of this traitor, because of this, I don't know, this collaborator. And I'm being invited by Jesus to be at this dinner party at his house. Like, he's invited us. And I'm, and I'm here, and I'm here with maybe some fellow fishermen, where Jesus is here. Tax collectors are here. Like, sinners are here. Like, what, what am I doing at this party? And the Pharisees come up, and they're like, what is Jesus doing at this party? And Jesus' answer is, this is who I'm here for. I came not to call, that is, invite, I came not to call or invite the righteous, but sinners. So I think we can ask ourselves, which group would we feel comfortable in? Which group do we want to be a part of? And the challenge of this passage is that we want the answer to be, like, I want to be part of the community of Jesus. I want to be part of a group. I want to be part of a crew that doesn't have everything together. I want to be part of a crew that is not necessarily that pretty. I think this tension that we feel, like, I'm like the Pharisees, I'm unlike the Pharisees, that's how we are. Like, how do we sort of get past this? How do we resolve this tension to help us kind of embrace this vision of community that we get from Jesus? And I think one thing that really helps us is a virtue of humility. Humility meaning, like, we always recognize our need of his salvation. Like, this is humility. You know, like, I think you can make a good case that humility is, like, the Christian virtue, maybe right after sacrificial love. You know, and I I figure it's possible that, you know, people could be really non-humble toward other people and be really humble towards God, but I don't think that's usually how it works. I think usually if you're not humble toward other people, doubtful that you're actually humble before God. Humility is where you're truly humble before other people, before God, where your boast is in God alone. Humility is what lets us be accepted as we are without any like merit that we've kind of built up on our own. And it's the same trait that allows us not to think of ourselves as better than other people. These are the kinds of people that were at this dinner. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And is, I mean, is that what our community aspires to be? Is that what our vision of community is? A people that are humble enough 
both to be receiving from Jesus and also humble enough to be receiving from Jesus along with these other people. You know, we're going to take communion in a second, and I think we come to the communion elements, this picture of Jesus' body and blood broken and shed for us. We come to this with thankfulness, with relief. We come thinking, yes, like, Jesus receives me. But because we do it not just individual, as individuals, but we do it as a community, we're also saying, I'm so glad that the people around me are also receiving this. Like, I'm, I know that I am accepted by Christ, and I also am fully convicted that these other people are also accepted by Christ. This kind of humility allows a community, this, uh, this kind of humility allows a church, it allows a community to look like Jesus. Jesus has this mission statement, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he lives that out in this banquet that we read about here in these verses. This is what the community of Christ looks like. Again, for us, we come with humility, and I think a humility that resolves some of that tension. Like, how can I be unlike the Pharisees here, even though there's parts of me, parts of us, that are very like the Pharisees? I think as we come humility with humility, as we come recognizing Jesus' call to us, and not just to us, like individually, but the call to others, a call to others around us. You know, we're all accepted like this. The way that Andrew, the way that Simon, these other people might have felt there, these fishermen might have felt with Levi, might have felt with these other tax collectors and sinners. That's something with humility. You know, we trust that they got over it. I mean, this is a New Testament church. And I think as we read a passage like this, uh, God is just challenging us with the same question. You know, he's giving us relief, but he's asking us, like, are you going to side with the Pharisees or are you going to side with Jesus? Are you willing to be at a table? Are you willing to be in communal life with people who aren't that great? Um, please pray with me. Just, just very simply, I'm just going to ask us to pray together to be a community like the community around Jesus, like a, like a New Testament community. And just renewing our acceptance um, by Jesus, but also renewing our acceptance of one another. Remembering this is Jesus' mission statement. He came to call not the righteous, but sinners. And say, you know, can we just say that just in your own words, I guess, as we say that together to the Lord. Many voices, one heart. Lord, let us be a community like yours in this passage. Let us be a community that you love, that you desire. Let's take a moment and pray that way.